You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. It's chilly December and you're listening to Sprogcast. With any luck, this episode will be coming out on or around the 25th as usual so there may be a certain amount of christmas cheer included this is episode 33 i'm mark harris and this is karen hall Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor pinter and martin an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy birth and parenting psychology nutrition yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com they kindly offer a 10 percent discount code if you use Sprogcast at the checkout and it's their 20th birthday they're oh yeah! A party on Saturday, which will be done and dusted by the time this comes out. Yeah, I'm invited to it, but won't be getting there. I don't think. No, so. I can't make it either. But happy birthday! Happy birthday! So, I when I was writing the script for this episode, I was very wary of using Christmas too much because I I don't know if everybody who listens necessarily celebrates Christmas. No. Um, and I wanted to be more inclusive and diverse. <laughs> so what? Just festive time? Yeah, cold. <laughs> Cold, dark. <laughs> Some real snow, my goodness. For you, nothing here. Really? Not a drop. You're joking me. Well, it, it snowed briefly on Sunday afternoon, but that was it. Wow, we've still got snow on the ground. I'm looking out of the window over the cemetery that's at the back of our house, and it's still thick, thick with snow. In fact, we were snowed in yesterday. Wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. And my, my little boy had a snow day yesterday, which was cool. And he was upset about there not being any school. Oh, bless him. I know. I said, what's the matter with you? (laughs) Stop loving learning so much. (laughs) Today we're talking about a lovely new documentary film and Mark chats with the director, Scott Kirschenbaum. Mm -hmm. Um, We're mopping up our year in Sprogcast and then we've got a festive birth story. What is we're mopping up our year in Sprogcast? We're going to say, oh, look at all the brilliant things we've done this year. And we're going to say, oh, "Oh, what have we done? I don't know. We should have prepared this. <laughs> We've had some really interesting interviews this year, haven't we? Yes. What was your favourite? I, I think one of the one of the highlights was Tilla. Yes. Uh, Tilla, the anaesthetist that turns the lights down when he comes in. I loved him. <laughs> and Sean Walker. Yeah, definite highlight. I think she's um, uh, her PhD will be uh, completed soon. Oh, cool. Oh, I've enjoyed, we've done two Sprogcast Lives. Yes, we have, and they've been so good. I learn so much when we do those. I mean, I learn from every interview we ever do, and it's great because I I listen to everything at least twice because of the editing. So I I learn masses from doing these things, but the Sprogcast Lives have been just brilliant this year. I know we had a lovely group of people in Leeds, but I think both of us would have liked to have seen more. Yeah, well, we could have. I mean, we sold twice as many tickets as people came. Oh, that's nice. But so that's people... nice to think people were supporting us. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had a big enough audience to, to make it workable. So I don't know, what do you think next year? Are we going to go out and about? Um, maybe later in the year. Let's see how things go. So all all our interviews in the last year have been super and we've talked to so many people. And we are now coming into our third year of doing... No, our fourth year. Is it our fourth it's... year? No, it's not our fourth January year. 2015 we started. Really? Hmm. So it's our third year then, isn't it? Because it's 2018 coming up. Seems like a lot. I'm sure that maths must be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I've enjoyed it and yeah. um, forward to another year of it. Yeah, however many years it is, it's been great. Maybe mix, mixing it up a bit next year. I you, don't know. You don't know what you mean by that. You keep saying it. 
I, well, what do I mean? I, I think I think covering some subjects that maybe we haven't given attention to. Yeah. Um, like, for example, next month, looking at a woman's power to make a choice in the context of cesarean birth. Mm-hmm. I think that will be good to hear uh, differences of opinion in that area. Yep. There's something we should do more on. Yeah, well, breastfeeding? Yes. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> We talk about polarization a lot, so it'd be it'd be good to allow some voices that that don't usually get heard in our communities. So we're open to suggestions. We clearly we want to do something different. We've no idea what it is. Have you got any ideas? Please tell us. Yeah. So you you talked, and we did this quite a while ago, I know. And because of having the the live episode, it's been pushed back a little bit. But you spoke to um, this man, Scott Kirschenbaum, who's the director of a documentary film. Can you remember much about the film? Oh, yeah, I, I, I do. It, it, I remember my conversation with with Scott, because Scott is effectively a filmmaker. Um, and he makes a particular type of film that focuses on the subject. His His film before this was on Alzheimer's. Um, but th- but the narrator of the film was the person suffering with Alzheimer's themselves. So it, w- it was a, a very personal, intimate story. And um, anyway, long story short, he he had a friend who was pregnant and he he, he was reflecting upon the fact that we, we really haven't seen a film that kind of showcases the power of a woman to birth from her perspective. Now, I'm not sure whether that's true i was wondering that when i was listening to it but i didn't come up with anything else i'm not sure i can't think of anything else particularly but i'm not sure whether that's true but i liked the way he spoke about that and it sent him on a bit of a journey he did doula training and all that kind of stuff um and confronted what he you know considered some resistance to his involvement um but a good interview i think there's a trailer available isn't there for it which i'll put on facebook now i'm not sure about the timings of the release and all the rest of it i know i was involved with giving some feedback on the rough cut and that was a couple of months ago so i i think launching next year so how was it when you saw the rough cut that's really interesting yeah no really good uh i really enjoyed it but it was a very intense piece of watch watching you know it's you're drawn into the narrative, which is led by the woman. You know, it's it's the woman's recorded voice that narrates the whole thing. And, um, yeah, very good film. OK, we're going on a lot about this and nobody else has had a chance to hear it yet. Shall we play the interview? Yeah, do it. Right, here it is. Well, my name's Scott Kirschenbaum and I am a documentary filmmaker and my current project that I'm working on is called Of Woman Born. It's a feature-length piece about one woman's physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual experience during labor. How did you get involved with a a film about birth? (laughs) Well, my film partner, Gracie Nagel, she lives in an intentional community outside of Portland, and one day we were driving to a meeting for our last film which was about one woman with alzheimer's disease and gracie had two home births and she was describing for me the experience that she had during labor you know which was obviously transformative beyond all fathomability and i just asked her to keep talking keep talking and as she was 
speaking about this experience, I was blown away that I had never seen a film that had depicted a labor authentically. Uh, it just occurred to me that in all my years, you know, my background's more in screenwriting. I'd never heard of anyone writing a screenplay that involved a real labor. I'd never seen a documentary that really depicted a full labor. It just was a complete uh, lacking. And, um, you know, as Gracie and I talked back and forth about this, the idea really honed in that we could do a film just about one woman's labor experience. And then it was a question of finding the right subject for this film. Right. So, so up until this point, you hadn't really considered birth as a film topic. Yeah, not at all. And, I, you know, I actually say during some uh, you know commentaries around this project that my background is birth ignorance, you know, like many 30 something year old men. I had never heard a birth story before from any friends, and I had never attended a labor other than my own. I knew so little about it, and you know, oftentimes you pick a documentary subject because you realize you can't live without, you can't move forward without understanding better why it is you're so ignorant about that subject. And to me, given that birth is such a universal, it seemed imperative that I delve deeper into the subject. So you came to a realization that you were ignorant and then wondered, well, how come I'm ignorant about this subject? How come there isn't more out there? Absolutely. And, you know, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina in the time where there is, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of focus on rituals and ceremonies and all sorts of spiritual practices. And it was crazy to me that I'd hear so many guys or blokes, you know, go on and on about their experiences at these gatherings and these vision quests. And yet we never were turning our attention to women who had just given labor, you know, given birth and hearing their stories, you know, which were obviously as equally, if not more transformative and that they were on these journeys for nine months, you know, with this tremendous revelation at the end. You know, so I just my interest was peaked. But then as I you know, dug deeper, it, it became more and more exciting to me, especially because there's so few men who care about this. I mean, how have you found it in the birth kind of world uh, as a man wanting to make a film about birth? Yeah, that's a great question. In the early pre-production stages, certainly there was some resistance. You know, I would often try to bounce these ideas off of very academic and, you know, some women who focused on feminist studies, gender studies, um, you know, queer studies in the media, LGBTQ plus, you know, issues. And I wanted to just get a sense of how comfortable they felt with a male director exploring the subject matter. I'd say a big turning point for me was starting to dialogue with Raymond DeFries who's a professor of midwifery at the University of Michigan. He became our first academic advisor. And, you know, we had a phone call one day and I said to him, you know, everything is great. You know, I love the subject, but I'm also feeling uncomfortable that every so often a woman would be put off by the idea that I'm the one who's doing the film. And, you know, he said, hey, Scott, you were born too. You know, you experienced birth as well. You have every right to you know, care about this subject matter. And the more comfortable you feel engaging, 
with these topics, the better off the film is going to be. So talking to him, talking to someone like you and just hearing more and more, you know, also obviously Michelle O'Donnell reading some of his writings, but just getting to a place where I felt comfortable conversing around the you know themes of birth and then also becoming a doula myself. That was really when I took the step forward and felt incredibly comfortable knowing that I could pull this off. You just slipped that in there, Scott, becoming a doula yourself. <laughs> yes. Tell us just a little bit about that journey then. Well, my uh, advisor or my mentor during the early stages of the project is this uh, was this woman, Wapio, uh, and she runs the Matrona. And uh, the subject of my film, Emily, was trained by Wapio. She's a midwife herself, Emily is. And so I felt like it was imperative that I go through a training myself. And so Wapio invited me to attend a doula training in Santa Cruz uh, about 15 months ago. And I went through the training and then I started, you know, sort of reaching out to anyone and everyone to ask them, you know, to let me sort of be an apprentice or to learn what I can from them. And, uh, you know, I unfortunately didn't get to attend a labor before we filmed the labor that was is featured in the film, Emily's Labor. So I didn't get to attend one before then, but I did get to be a, a doula assistant at a labor um, about a month and a half ago in San Francisco. And it was amazing. And I realized one of the main secrets, you know, doulas need to be available also to male partners as well, you know, also be available to assist, you know, more doulas and, uh, you know, midwife, just, I want to be more available. Um, even if it's just early labor, you know, I felt so comfortable in the early, the early labor process, you know, providing counter pressure, adjusting pillows, you know, even picking podcasts that, you know, someone would want to listen to opening and, you know, opening and closing the window, whatever. It just felt like, you know, my background very much is in improv comedy. I did that in college and it feels like a long form improv experience. You know, that's (laughs) (laughs) I notice about being around birth that there's an active passivity that is almost counterintuitive to me as a man. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Uh, inside my male neurophysiology, I want to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the ability to step into a space of active passivity, you know, being present but seeking to be invisible, uh, is is kind of very counterintuitive. So, so you you did some preparation for the filming and directing of the film. Did anyone raise the issue of the the actual fil- filming itself? Uh, intruding uh, upon the narrative that's unfolding. Yeah, it's. I think a lot of people assumed that it would be an issue, and you know that's why we had some hesitation from certain potential subjects when we were in the pre-production process. But once I met Emily, and once I sat down with her and her husband Jason, I think we reached a place where we were entirely comfortable with this process. And then in turn, you know, I wanted to recruit the cinematographer that I worked with on a Haiti project, a male, and a number of the people from his team based out of San Francisco were men as well. And so it was sort of like the indoctrination into making this film also involved the uh, a number of these guys feeling comfortable as like sort of you know de facto doulas as well because they needed to be 
practicing the active passivity that you spoke of. They needed to be comfortable with that so that they did not flinch when the day came that we were actually filming. So I, you know, there was some concern maybe in the early going, could we pull this off? Would, would this, but we, we spent so many months preparing for the day that the labor came. And we just all felt ready and comfortable so that when I was woken up at 3 a.m., the production team was there and shooting within 10 minutes. Wow. And, you know, we were on fire and we knew exactly what we needed to do. And everyone was just so it was the same thing that a doula would do, a midwife would do. We were all just locked into Emily's energy. You know, so if there came a time during the course of the filming that she said to us, Hey, we're, I'm not comfortable or, you know, any, if anything came up that was an issue or concern, we would respond. And I think we would have been very ready to respond, but it was a pretty seamless process. And I do feel like we all kind of followed the lead of the midwife who was, you know, very adept at, and skilled at standing and holding, holding the space and being a witness to Emily and only responding if Emily asked for a specific need or if she needed help with any particular aspect of her labor. I, I, I mean, I was I was moved to tears by the rough cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you've done some presenting uh, across America and, and other places. You've presented uh, parts of the film. What kind of response are you getting? So we did a screening of a 20-minute work sample at the Indie Birth Conference last spring, and... I felt the response was tremendous. It's the best response I've had to any early stage cut of a documentary I've ever done. I was expecting it to be hugely crit. You know, I wanted to hear all the criticism. I thrive on constructive criticism, but it was tremendous and pretty ubiquitous, you know, with tears and laughs and just sort of like unbridled zeal for the film. Emily and Gracie, the producer, did a Q&A afterwards, and that was terrific. Um, so the response has generally been great. And I also realized that we didn't, we're not making this film just for the birth community. I, I want this to be a movie that people of all walks of life, you know, men, women, girls from the age of puberty onward, grandmothers. I want everyone to, uh, you know, at least engage with the film. And yes, you know, we intended for an evocative film because it's so, different from other birth films. You know, I'm not trying to take anything away from other pieces that have come out over the last years, but we intentionally wanted to make this a fully immersive experience so that you felt like you were breathing with Emily, like, you know, like you could have that sensory experience on her skin and that every moan and yell and, you know, movement that she had, we also felt as well as an audience member. And so I hope people will respond to that. And I also am so excited to like really work in the soundscape, which we haven't gotten to work in yet. And the, the score as well. It's, it's meant to be wholly integrated. And I think people will respond once we have the finished 60 minute version of this film. Right. Can can you give us a, a bit of a timetable? Absolutely. So, you know, I'm proud to say that I've been working uh, with an editor in Belfast, Stuart Sloan. We've been working for the last few months putting together this rough cut. And now I'm uh, back in the States. We will be working with the composers and the sound artists, and we will have a more polished rough cut in September. 
We'll finish the film, hopefully, funding provided by Thanksgiving. I'm going to maybe guarantee that. And then we uh, hope to have our festival premiere in early 2018. And then we uh, are going to look to have, you know, television and uh, uh, sort of online distribution at, later on in 2018. So ideally, the BBC and other outlets throughout Europe will pick up the film and present it because we do think we're providing a singular look at a labor. You know, and clearly we're not saying this is how all women should labor. We're saying that in and of itself, to depict one woman's experience during labor, to honor that fully as deserving of our intention, that that is what a feature film can be and should be. You know, in the same way that we do these other male-driven films, you know, with the focus on machismo and everything else, we should have uh, in a distinctly feminist movie, and that's what we're hoping to accomplish with this. Most of our listeners are probably UK based. How can they get involved and support what you're doing? So, you know, first thing, try to connect with us on Facebook. Our, our Facebook page is uh, Of Woman Born Film. So that's our handle, I guess. And then our website is ofwomanbornfilm.com. If you just connect with those two, then you'll get updates on everything we're doing with the project. You know, we'd certainly appreciate donations to our Kickstarter campaign. That would be phenomenal. Uh, but even more so, we just want to get the word out. You know, it's it's hard. You know, birth is not considered the sexiest subject matter in mainstream culture. But having said that, I know there's this invisible, no, maybe not even invisible. There's a hugely passionate birth community. And I've gone to engage with people all over the world around that. And I just think if we all band together we can get this movie out there and have a tremendous response. I know we can, and I know, you know, that movies like The Freedom for Birth, you know, the UK filmmakers who did that and Microbirth, they've had a great response, and we want to do the micro-screening events. We will do that, but first things first, we need to get, you know, mainstream distribution. It's imperative because people need to take birth films seriously. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, it's the media shapes the narrative. Mm -hmm. And they've been doing that for years in the context of birth. I mean, in the UK, we have one born every minute, which, which, which is a pseudo kind of fly on the wall documentary. But it, underneath, it's shaping a narrative about birth. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I get that. Scott, thank you very much for spending time with us today. We'll post all those links to to our page and I wish you all the very best. Thank you so much, Mark, and I love the work you all are doing with Birthing for Blokes, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so the film of Woman Born, hopefully going to be out in the UK over the next year at some point, and if we find out, we'll let you know about it. Um, and we're also interested in this question of, is that the, how to describe it, the only film that showed it from the woman's perspective? Yeah, I'm not sure that's true, and I'm sure our listeners will, will put him right. Yeah, so come on, inundate us with other suggestions. So what have we got in the news? We didn't we haven't posted much, but there is actually some breaking news today, isn't there? Yeah, you've got you've got um a statement from Independent Midwives UK, yeah? So this is um because there's been the announcement today um about the insurance issue. It's a message to their supporters. Should I read it out? 
Yeah. We are devastated to have to tell you all that our legal challenge of the Nursing and Midwifery Council, an MC, has been unsuccessful. The court has heard the evidence and decided that the NMC did not act unfairly, did not act unlawfully. Sadly, we must accept that decision since we don't have the resources to take this legal action any further, and the advice is that it is unlikely to be successful. We believed strongly in our case against the NMC, which was why we brought this judicial review, but we wouldn't have been able to do so without the enormous warmth and passion and financial backing of all you, our supporters. We owe you a deep debt of gratitude and we are only sorry that the outcome hasn't been what we hoped. We believe that women deserve real continuity of care, respect and informed choice, including being able to choose their midwives. We also believe that the future lies in creating an insurance product for midwifery care that is woman-centred, that does not restrict women's choices and that is ideally owned and run by women for women, so that it is affordable for as many women as want it. For this to happen we would need to find new ways of raising capital and we will need your involvement and support. We cannot tell you how inspired we have been by the support we have received from women across the UK and internationally. IMUK will now evaluate the ideas and options available to us and develop these for the new year. Please stay with us while we do this and we will update you as soon as we can on how you can become involved. Yeah, it's a sad moment to be honest when it, when it comes to women having a real choice for an independent service you know because with uh, you know the current situation that there is no that choice isn't available to a woman yeah and it just sounds like there's there's a limit to the resources they can put into making that change well i I, i'm assuming the court will write you know there'll be a write-up of the court court's ruling won't there so so we'll get to read how the judge has come to this conclusion um i i know i i felt there was a real air of confidence that the position of independent midwives had been put you know very clearly that the indemnity cover was enough given their sphere of practice so i'm interested to hear what the judge has to say on that um you know why he or she has come down on the side of the um, nmc Mm. Well, I think that it would be interesting to come back to this when we look at continuity of care, which is one of our planned subjects for yeah. next year, and yeah. see if we can get someone from IMUK midwives to... Yeah, well, they'll be able to talk about it now, yeah, won't they? exactly. That's what I was thinking. But um, we want to say that's broadcast, and hopefully all of our listeners are completely with you to, to the IMUK. And the statement, is, for me, is bang on the money when it talks about an insurance product you know that's run by women for women mm. that's affordable and that's fit for purpose very important for the future of midwifery if, if i'm honest and for the future of um you know women's choices having a full range of choices yeah absolutely one of the guiding principles behind all of our work isn't it we talk about being woman-centered and how important that is uh, and yet week after week uh, i certainly get exposed to stories about women who have, who feel that they're they're not the centre of the care that they're being offered, that they're having to fit in with um, a service which is not fit for purpose. So, so that's not a very happy subject. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> there isn't much here, is there? We have. We've got something really interesting, which is some new research by Amy Brown. Oh yeah, 
friend of the show, Amy Brown. Hi, Amy. And she has reported, and she says this herself, so I have no um, qualms about saying it. She's re- She has discovered um, what we already knew, which is that there's no difference in self-reported frequency of choking between infants introduced to solid foods using a baby-led weaning or traditional spoon-feeding approach. And this is in the Journal of Human Nutrition and Dietetics um, yeah. at the beginning of December. What, 1,151 Decent Mother. sample size. I, I, it's a bit counterintuitive in a way. You you say we already knew this Did stuff. Did we not? <laughs> well, <laughs> my view of it would always have has, has been for a long time because I did used to do workshops on this, and it's something that I get asked a lot. Um, the different approaches have different choking risks, or di- they have different hazards. Um, so with spoon feeding, you're putting a, a semi liquid into or towards the back of a baby's mouth right quite often a baby who is slightly reclined in a high chair oh so maybe aspirations an issue maybe it is with Uh. with finger foods the child is picking it up so they immediately have knowledge of how big it is and what its texture is and they will tend to put it to the front of their mouth because they're fairly incompetent at eating to start with and it quite often falls back out again and they've got to then learn to manipulate it and move it around their mouth um, to get it to the back of their mouth where when they will swallow it so there's there's a different process i I got it but when you're preparing the foods for an infant that's going to be feeding itself Mm. do, do you cut the food uh, you make big pieces. You, what you want is nice big chip shapes because that's what a baby can hold in their little chunky little fist. So you need a bit that sticks out and a bit to hold on to. Okay. And the bit and... to hold on to is purely handle because that usually ends up getting kind of squished and dropped okay. and you know lost down their vest or something like that. But what and, they, and do... they, they, then, then they gum the food. Yeah, they'll just sort of suck and gnaw and maybe little bits will come off. So if you think raw carrot and a, yeah. a, a toothless child. Yeah, they're not going to be biting off great big pieces of it. Yeah, so they're very unlikely. I, I understand the general public assuming that there's going to be a high risk of choking. Yeah, but the theory of baby-led weaning is is to do with um, it being developmentally appropriate. So a, a child that isn't yet able to accurately pick up something the size of, say, a, a, a sultana is probably mm. not going to be able to manipulate it as far as their mouth either. Mm. Okay. So this is this is good, and it's relevant to, of course, those of you who are eating you know, celebratory family meals at this time of year. I know my my son's first solid food was Christmas Day, and it was a green bean, and he did not eat it. Yeah. <laughs> and he was almost exactly six months old on Christmas Day. All right. And so York, um, Yorkshire pudding wouldn't be appropriate then. It would be perfectly appropriate. It would probably okay. have been much better. And certainly, um, if you asked him now, eleven years later, he would thoroughly endorse having a Yorkshire pudding rather than a green bean. Rather than a green bean. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. So, um, and since we've mentioned Christmas. Are we going to have all the Christmas jokes about stable being dim lighting and all that stuff? No, Mark, you're just going to introduce the birth story. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we've got a birth story coming up from Laura James. It's very lovely. Right, my name is Laura James and I am 32 years old, just qualified as a midwife and well, two years ago now, um, on Christmas Day, I had my third baby. Um, I have a daughter and two sons. My firstborn was my daughter, who was in the hospital birth. 
um, and my second and third were both home births. Um, my due date with my third baby, Oakley, was Christmas Day. Um, and in the preparation leading up to that, I did probably lots of things to try and encourage him out and maybe a day or two before. Um, but half past one in the morning, typically, I woke up with some shrike quite strong contractions and realised we would be having him on Christmas Day. Um, probably about five, half past five in the morning, things started to ramp up a little bit, so we um, blew up the pool. Um, we called probably midwife around six o'clock when my contractions were becoming quite intense. Um, I had quite a quick delivery with my second baby. Um, and at this point, we called the grandparents to come over just to be on hand for the other two. Um, typically, as I got in the pool and the children woke up, everything seemed to settle down a little bit. And I think this was obviously a bit of a hormonal reaction to a distraction. And at that point, I didn't want to be in the pool having a baby. I wanted to be opening Christmas presents with the other two mm. in the lounge. <laughs> so I, um, it was a really difficult situation to be in because obviously I wanted to crack on with my labour but at the same time I didn't want to miss out on the excitement with the other two oh, no. so, so they were really eager mummy mummy play this do this and I'm thinking mummy really doesn't isn't in the right state to be doing this at the moment um so it probably got to around 11 o'clock and my midwife advised me to give the children a kiss head upstairs switch off a little bit and let everybody else entertain them and try and get back in the zone so followed her advice and came upstairs and my husband and I popped some hypnobirthing on and took a birthing ball up and um, really just tried to focus on bringing the labour, you know, progressing with the labour. Um, and when my youngest went for a nap, probably around half past 12, my daughter was entertained, things just ramped up very quickly. Um, midwife was fantastic and just kind of left us to our own devices popped up um, frequently to listen to baby and then the next time she came up I think she recognized that I was entering into that transition phase and shaking so without saying she went back downstairs topped up the pool um, I think my waters went at 1.39 and I ran downstairs my husband was trying to get me back into the water and Oakley was born at one minute past two Um it was just amazing so we had a little room set up with Christmas tree, fairy lights, a um, little bit of Christmas music on, and his brother woke up about two minutes after we was born, and the whole family came in. Um, so we was born into the water, and it was absolutely peaceful, lovely delivery. Very, very special. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty to my eyes. It, bring, it brings them back to mind thinking about actually I uh, I graduated yesterday and we just sat kind of reminiscing over the last five years it's taken me to do the degree having the two two of the children during it and we just couldn't believe like we got a wonderful video of his birth um and I still can't believe it's almost two years oh, since congratulations then. thank you <laughs> so yes it couldn't have um couldn't have been any nicer and I think it's just that magic of Christmas as well. It's even more special now, having his birthday that day. It's uh, something you kind of, you'll never forget. Yeah. It's amazing. So his first kind of experience of the world was this Christmassy, beautiful, peaceful, 
family atmosphere. Yes, it was. It was. It was amazing. Um, and just to do it at home as well, it was. It, we've got some fantastic photos of the day of like the children opening the presents and me kind of stopping for contractions in the background. And it's just nice to see, you know, that have those memories. Um, but obviously, I didn't have to be separated from the other two on Christmas Day. Yeah. So it was wonderful. So my daughter takes a lot of pleasure in saying that her brother's like the baby Jesus because he, <laughs> he came on Christmas Day. Um, but no, it was absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's really special. <laughs> Lovely. It was nice as well, just the fact that my first birth was very medicalised in hospital and um, like reflecting back on that and probably realise that the birth wasn't managed as well as it could have been. All my babies have been back to back. Um, so my second was a planned home birth and managed to have a lovely, lovely quick delivery with him because I remained, you know, very active and mobile. And so we were really hoping for the same for the third time round. Obviously, no complications, but it was nice to just be at home in my own jammers and surrounded by family. It was amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right then. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. So she also sent me a video, which if I can work out how to, I will put that on the page too. So massive thanks to Laura for such a lovely story, which genuinely did make me cry. And I'm tough as nails. I don't cry at stuff. Mark, Mark cries all the time, but not me. I cry, not you. Bloody hell, you're the, you're the, you're the cynic. That's right. And let's keep it that way. What's inspired you this month, Karen? Oh, lots of things. Um, did you get a copy from good old Pinter and Martin of the Suzanne Yates book? Yeah. What did you think? It's all right. I loved it. I've got the original because this is a reprint. Is it? Oh, I didn't know that. It's nice enough. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. My stepdaughter is having a baby in April. And uh, obviously I've got loads of birth-related books, right? Hmm. What book do you think I decided to give her? Your own. No, that's for a, <laughs> that's for a partner if oh, he wants. Right. He's already got a copy of that if he wants to read. I know. I gave her Millie Hill. Well, yes, that's a very sensible book to give. I gave her Millie Hill, and the feedback I'm getting from her is fantastic. Yeah. I've, already told, I've already told Millie, and, and I always I always did say that Millie's book will become a classic in the field of you know introductory books. And I think when I see books like Susanna's. I I kind of, and I've said it before, I kind of think, well, it's all been done, isn't it? I just really liked, um, it, it's it's an uncomplicated little book. It explains why the things are useful, like the, the positions and the breathing yeah. and the visualisation and things like that. For me, it's useful as an antenatal teacher because I need to include that stuff in my courses and I'm just and, not very good at it. And good graphics as well. Yes. Yeah. The photos are good, aren't they? I'm looking at it now and the photos are really good. They are. They're all kind of white women. It would be nice if it was uh, a bit more diverse. There's not a lot of diversity in there, no. is there? But for yeah. for me, I mean, I, I've observed practitioners who can just do breathing and visualisation stuff off the top of their head. They can do a relaxation without a script. And I'm not one of those people. And so I, I used it on Saturday in an NHS course and just read out some of her, her breathing stuff. And it was lovely. And I'll definitely use it again. Oh, very good. Well, that's a good recommendation. There is a black doctor at the back. Oh, good. <laughs> so round his neck, but there you go. I've also read um, Holly Willoughby's <laughs> book recently. What's that then? 
Um, so Holly Willoughby apparently is a TV presenter. I've met her, mate. Have you? Yes. Have you read a book? I, I was on this morning with Holly and Philip Schofield. Now go on. She had a lovely water birth, you know. Did she? She was telling me, yeah. She sat next to me, telling me the baby came up facing her, oh. which was really lovely. Anyway, go on. What's the book about? It's about how to parent. Oh. It's just a bit. <sighs> It is very superficial. Um, it's very oh, you must do it this way because this worked for me. But all babies are different, so you should do what you want. But but this this was a really good thing to do, and evidence base is is non-existent. I know you don't care about that stuff, but I do. Ah, it's not that I don't care about the evidence. <laughs> I just don't think the evidence is to be believed. Okay, but I do believe the evidence that says that you don't need to eat lactation cookies to make good milk, and she <sighs> does does give you a recipe so they lactation cookies i didn't even know there was such a thing didn't you well let's rant about lactation cookies for a minute lactation cookies are things that um are suggested and they'll always contain two particular ingredients oats and chocolate and often other things as well that do not go in cookies um because it is believed that eating certain food will make your milk better and the physiology of of lactation does not support that no, it's rubbish, isn't it? Um, and so, and my real, real issue with them is that it, it's one of the, it's divisive. Why, what, in what ways is it divisive? Well, why, why can't mothers who are not breastfeeding have cookies? What, not, well, they, they can. They just can't have the lactation cookies. Well, it sounds to me, it sounds to me like it doesn't matter whether they, they have lactation cookies or not, because they don't do anything, right? Well, exactly. So let's not call them lactation cookies. Let's call them mother cookies. Let's call them cookies. That's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> so there you go. That, well, that's uh, my so you don't recommend her book. Why did you even buy it to read it? Because all my um, groups, somebody always mentions this this great book they've got, and I, if if someone keeps mentioning a book, then I need to know what's in it. I need yeah. to know what's influencing the the spheres of influence. Yeah, very good, very good. And I also read Rosie Newman's book, Trust Your Body, oh. Trust Your Baby, and that was nice. Oh, I dipped into it. I dipped into it. That's one I've given to my stepdaughter. Yeah, I I passed mine on quickly as well. There you go. And there's one more thing that's inspired me lately, which is um, because I'm I'm doing the NCT Adult Learner module this year, and I've got to observe um, some tutorials. And I went to observe a level four tutorial and had a really nice time with a group of five of them. It was really exciting to see how they were learning all this new stuff and getting very enthused about being part of NCT and so I wanted to say hi to Grace, Sarah, Laura, Alice and Vicky. Hmm. I had an experience that was very inspiring in relation to the NCT as well. Did you? Yeah. I went to a, a group hub meeting in Bristol, was it? Right. I've really, really enjoyed it. A big group. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That was inspiring. And they gave me a lovely pen. I heard about that. It was just lovely. I did enjoy it. I think I went down well. You always do. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of our deep mid-winter episode. We hope you've had a mince pie while, you, while you've listened. Unless you're in the bath, that is, Maddie. Uh, our next episode will be out on January the 25th. And we're planning to talk about maternal requests cesarean. We have no guests lined up for that yet, so please get in touch if it's an area close to your heart. Let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you.
That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us a review. That helps us to jump up the charts. Oh, yeah. Um, and thank you for listening and Happy New Year. And goodbye from me. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.